We are going to read together from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to Heidi's if you are new or visiting. Uh, my name is Rod, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you along, and as you heard, we're doing a two-week series, which we do each year, thinking about our mission statement, to know Christ and to make him known. And we're looking at the second part of that tonight uh, from this passage in 2 Corinthians 5. So let me invite you to pray with me, ask that God will help us as we wrestle with his word together, that we might hear it truly and respond rightly. So please pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather freely tonight. We thank you that you are a speaking God, that as we read your word, we hear your voice. And we pray tonight that we might hear it clearly, that your spirit might apply your word to our hearts and minds, that you might encourage us, that you might challenge us afresh as we think about your love for us, and the opportunities we have to share that love with others. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, love, it's a powerful motivating force. It compels people to do things that they would not normally do. Back in March of 2012, uh, Roger Taylor was having a night out in London with his then-girlfriend Jeannie Jagpal, and as they came through Piccadilly Circus, they were met by a 100-voice professional choir singing Frankie Valley's Can't, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. 
There was also backing from 200 dancers that Taylor had recruited on Facebook. And eventually he proposed with wonderful results. Matt Still, the year before that, convinced his girlfriend Ginny to go to the movies as they often did, but this time it was different because he'd arranged for the cinema to play a trailer that he had made before the movie that chronicled his journey to get to the cinema in preparation for him to ask the question, and as the trailer finished, he did so with moving results. Now, if you're wondering, no, I didn't do anything that spectacular when I proposed to my wife. She might have wished so 24 years ago. But I know people that have done such things. I remember a guy who had arranged um, to have a breakfast on an island in a river. He'd rowed out in a boat, taken table and chairs, set up uh, a breakfast, and then had arranged to meet her, rowed her out, they had breakfast, and at the end of that time, proposed to her. I know of another guy that was throwing rocks at his girlfriend's window at about 5 a.m. and she came out bleary-eyed. He whisked her off to a hot air balloon ride and in the middle of the ride he produced a kinder surprise egg and within the egg was an engagement ring. Love is a powerful motivating force. It moves people to do things, compels them to take actions that they would not normally take. So today, as we consider the second half of our church's mission statement to make Christ known, I want to unpack for you, remind you of how great Christ's love is and how it should move us, compel us to share that message of love, actions that may take us out of our comfort zone. I want to ask the question tonight, how can we share Christ's love for Wollongong and indeed the whole world? How can we share Christ's love for our region here, indeed across the globe? And to answer that question, I want to talk about three M's tonight. I want to talk about motivation, message, and multiplication. I want to talk about motivation, message, and multiplication. So firstly, let's consider the motivation for spreading Christ's love, for making him known. In our passage in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul also describes love as a compelling force. But it's not romantic human love that he's talking about, but rather it's divine love. So notice again what he states in verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And was raised again. So Paul says that love compels him. That's a strong word, compels, and it's strong in the original Greek in this passage. It's something that constrains, forces a person, controls them. He can't not share this great news. He is compelled to. And it's actually in the present tense, the verb here. So it's emphasizing a continuous nature of this motivation. That is, he's constantly compelled. There's never a day where he's not wanting to share. He's thinking moment by moment, day by day, about how the love that he's understood in Christ might be offered, shared with other people. And that's the thing to notice here too. Not only is he compelled, but it's Christ's love that compels him. It's not his own love for those around him. It's Christ's love for Paul and indeed for all people made in the image of God. He's referring to Christ's willingness to give up his life so that others might live. That their sin, their rejection 
of God and his rightful rule over their life that condemns them before him might be dealt with, that they might be forgiven. Paul refers to this love of Christ in lots of different ways in this passage. In verse 14, he speaks of one dying for all. And Paul has experienced this love. He knows what it means firsthand. We were reflecting on that last week as Mark shared and as we thought about Paul's journey on the road to Damascus and how he was confronted with the risen Jesus, um, struck down by a blinding light, understood the gospel for the first time, moved away from his belief in his good works and in earning his way to heaven. And so he absorbed and understood from that moment on Christ's love for him, a sinner. And he says as a result, he's spurred on to share the gospel. He has benefited from Christ's love. He now wants others to know about it. And so he summarizes his attitude in verse 15, did you notice? He says, well, I no longer live for myself, but for Christ who died for me. Indeed, that's his encouragement to all those who have come to know Jesus and his love. Part of the way of no longer living for yourself, but living for Christ is to share his message, to share his love with other people so that they too might respond. But did you notice in our passage in verse 11, there's another motivation that Paul offers for us to declare the good news. Have a look at verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read them out for you. As we think about the fear of the Lord, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. So this fear of the Lord is a phrase that sometimes we can get hung up about. We tend to think of things like a a child cringing in fear before a parent who's angry and out of control, perhaps. This is an ugly kind of image, fear of the Lord. But no, here what we're speaking about is rightly revering, standing in awe of God, recognizing his character and who he is that we're accountable to him, that he's not only the God who loves and has sent his son, but he's also the holy judge to whom we must give an account. It's an acknowledgement of who we're dealing with. And to fear the Lord in the end means to obey his word, to respond to his commands. And Paul knows that God instructs him and every other disciple of Jesus to share the good news that has brought them life. And he knows that one day he's going to have to give an account for his life, as well as his, including his efforts to try to persuade people. And so he says as a result in verse 11, so this is what I do, I try to persuade men. Now this phrase, um, persuasion, uh, it refers to removing intellectual barriers, to overcoming prejudice, overcoming ignorance. It's a fairly strong term. It's talking about sort of debating it could be argument, it could be personal testimony, but it's a strong discussion. Now, sometimes when we think about a term like that or that kind of image, uh, we're fearful again that somehow this is kind of a Bible-bashing image. This is somebody that goes around and whether they want to hear it or not, they're just going to tell them about Jesus, that somehow that's wrongly motivated, that it's not out of love. 
But notice what Paul says in the second half of verse 11. He makes it clear that his approach is not wrongly motivated. There's nothing underhanded about it that his conscience is clean before God and others. He says, what we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. Paul's actions, his motives lie open before everyone. And as we think about this first point, I guess the application, the obvious application for ourselves is do we have this heart, this compulsion because of Christ's love that Paul speaks about? Are you motivated to share the gospel like him? To hold out the message that one has died to save? Well, here's one way perhaps to think about it to provide a litmus test. Let me put it more emotively. Are there times, perhaps regularly, where you find yourself in tears, distraught about family members, about close friends, about work colleagues who are heading towards a Christless eternity that don't know Christ's love as you know it? Do you find yourself in that moment so often? Or perhaps, like me, you think that more often to your shame that you're not really moved to think or to pray for your neighbour or your work colleague, that you're often caught up in the things that you're doing, unconcerned for those around you who are lost, who desperately need to know Christ's love. See, I think what Paul's saying to us here is if that we don't begin to love people the way that God loves them, then we'll never be spurred to cross the barriers that we always see in front of us. We're always fearful of the rejection of the person that we might share with. We're always thinking about that impediment that will stop me from acting. But the only thing that will get me to cross that bridge is to truly see them as God sees them, to love them as God loves them, to be moved to overcome those fears. Christ's love must compel us too. Now, sure, we're not going to emulate the Apostle Paul. We're not going to be unique as his role was as the Apostle to the Gentiles, uh, planting churches left, right and centre. But the same principle applies to us. We're to be moved by Christ's love shown for us that we may reach out to others. See, you and I have to look out at the rudderless sea of humanity and see them as they are, desperately in need of a saviour. We need to feel the kind of compassion that God has for people. The sort of compassion that Jesus had as he approached the city of Jerusalem, as he moved towards his crucifixion, where he wept over the city because he knew that so many of them were going to reject him, the Messiah that they said they'd been waiting for for centuries. We need to feel the way that God felt over the city of Nineveh, where he sent Jonah twice because the first time he wouldn't even bother going to go and declare God's love and opportunity for repentance before it's too late. The kind of compassion that Jonah himself was so bereft of. He couldn't care less what happened to Nineveh, really. He was almost shocked and annoyed that God was going to save people, that they were repenting when he shared the message. And so often I feel like that can be the truth for many Christians as well because we're not moved by Christ's love for us to reach out and overcome those barriers as we think about the needs of those around us. Well, where do you stand on that at the top of this year? 
Motivation. We need to be rightly motivated. Not out of duty, not out of obligation because I have to do this thing. It's not a burden that I must share this faith. It's expected of the Christian. It's because I have experienced Christ's love and I am so desperate for other people to know it that I know that there'll be a day where they have to give an account and I want to warn them. I'm spurred on by the motivations that the Apostle Paul speaks of in this passage. Which brings me to a second point. There's not only the issue of the motivation, but there's the issue of the message. What is the heart of the message which must be understood? What is the good news that we should feel compelled to share? Well, have a look again with me at verses 18 and 19. The Apostle Paul writes, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We don't need to be brilliant at the English language to see in those verses that there's a key word that keeps coming up called reconciliation or reconcile. It's obviously a key idea here. And we need to understand this because it's important for the context of the gospel, isn't it? In a relational sense, it means that something is desperately broken and has to be restored. There's two warring parties that need to be brought back together. There's a great divide. There's a complete breakdown. And there needs to be a bridge built again. And sadly, we see that so much person to person in our world. There's such a need for reconciliation, isn't there, in human relationships. And then we can think about what that means in terms of our relationship with God also. Let me give you an example. Elizabeth Barrett uh, is a famous English poet, a very classic English literature. Um, She married Robert Browning, another famous English writer, But her parents were so angry at her choice to marry Browning that they disowned her. They said to her, we're never going to see you or speak to you again. And she couldn't believe their reaction. She was a wonderful writer and so she wrote to them week after week seeking a reconciliation. Letter after letter after letter. After 10 years, she received this massive box in the mail And when she opened the box, she found to her dismay and her heartbreak that there were all her letters and not one of them had been opened. Now, it's ironic because today it's considered some of the most beautiful writing in English literature. If they'd opened just one of them, maybe a reconciliation would have been brokered. There are a lot of broken relationships in our world. There's a lot of alienation between people, between family members, between those who were once friends, best friends, alienation between ethnic groups, indeed whole nations. Our planet is just full of broken relationships. This is the very sad truth in our world. There is an overwhelming need for reconciliation. But I want to say to you tonight, the Bible wants to say to you that All of those problems are secondary to the reconciliation we need with God. 
Our greatest alienation is between us as sinners and a holy God. Indeed, the horizontal relationships will never be fully fixed until that one is fixed. And so we're called to see our need, to see our complete breakdown in our relationship with God. And that should spur us to see that the greatest need of any person around us who is not a believer is to hear this news of reconciliation. If I have come to understand what God has done for me, Christ's love shown to me, then I must hold that out. That is why it is the great purpose, one of the great purposes of the church, those who have been reconciled to hold out this message of hope. And the Bible is like God's love letter to the world, his letter of reconciliation, saying, won't you just read it and come back to me? And notice that this reconciliation is through Christ, verse 18. It's through our sin being dealt with in verse 19. Our sin's not counted against us. Sin is our rejection of God as our rightful ruler over our lives. It's the cause of the irreconcilable differences. You know, sin is the problem, Jesus is the solution. And through Christ is a shorthand way of talking about Christ's death and resurrection, his substitutionary death on our behalf, that our sin might be dealt with once and for all. And that's why Paul can speak about in verses 14 and 15 that Christ died for all. He who died for them and was raised again. These wonderful phrases of Jesus, our substitute. And we can wonder, well, we're undeserving. How is that even possible? What are the mechanics of that? Well, Paul even spells that out further for us in verse 21. Notice there, he says, God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so there's this great exchange here. Our sin is debited onto Jesus, the perfect substitute, and we are credited with his righteousness, undeserving sinners as we are, so that we might be forgiven, that we might have new life. And this message of reconciliation can bring change, a new relationship between us and a holy God, it's something that we desperately need. And in God's love, he reaches out to us in Christ. And notice that in verse 18. It's God who is initiating the reconciliation. It's the offended party who reaches out to the rebel. In our rebellion and our rejection of God, we're not only undeserving of such offer of forgiveness, but we're not interested. Notice in verse 15, Paul says we're not to live for ourselves any longer. He's saying, really, prior to you hearing the good news, you didn't care that God loved you, that he was acting in love to reach you in Christ. You had no interest. You were unconcerned by the huge rift. But now, if you've come to Jesus, then you're to live for him. And so the one in the right brokers the reconciliation for us, the rebels. What does that look like? I think it's hard for us to get our minds around that. Let me give you a human example. There's a guy called Walter Everett, he's a pastor in the United States, received a phone call in the 1980s that he was completely unprepared for. There was a policeman on the other end of the line and said, I'm sorry to tell you, but your son Scott, he was murdered last night. And Walter Everett tells the story of his reaction to that moment. 
and how he was overcome with grief, obviously, to begin with. But then what took over was anger that raged through him. He said, I was so angry at this attacker that had taken away the life of my son. And he couldn't see how he was going to deal with this anger in his life. It got worse because a plea bargain was done for the murderer and he had a reduced sentence even. He didn't know how he was going to deal with it until he appeared in court for the sentencing and he saw Mike Carlucci, the murderer, for the first time, three weeks short of the first anniversary of his son Scott's death. And Mike stood up and said that he was truly sorry for what he had done. And so Walter Everett went home and he wrote a letter to Mike. Talked about his anger, talked about his struggle, asked some questions about why and what had happened. And then he said to him, look, I forgive you in Christ. Explained God's love, God's grace. He posted the letter. Three weeks later, he gets a letter back from Mike. Mike says, I couldn't believe it. When I read your letter, nobody had ever said to me in my life, you're forgiven. He said, that night, I knelt at my bedside. I asked for God's forgiveness. But you see, that was just the start. It led to an ongoing correspondence. Indeed, a relationship grew over time. Walter Everett actually went before the parole board to try and get Mike's sentence further reduced, and he was successful. In November of 1994, he was the officiating minister at his wedding. The one who was wronged reached out to broker a reconciliation. See, the gospel is good news. They asked Mike about his early release and he said, well, it felt good, but I'd already been set free the moment God forgave me. That's the truth. See, this is the kind of message that our world needs, desperately needs. Christ's love, it should compel us. We're sinners in need of rescue. And it brings me to a third and final point. The third M, multiplication. See, as we spread the gospel, especially in Australia today, we feel like it's hard ground. It often is. And so if we think about, say, 25 million Australians or so, about, say, reaching them by ourselves, it, it just seems overwhelming. We wouldn't even start the process. We would give up instantly. But if there were an army of disciples of Jesus who were all sharing the good news day after day after day, wouldn't there be this ripple effect across the nation where we were just one small part of this huge movement of multiplying the message going out? I think so often as we think about evangelism, we like to think that there might be somebody else that will do it. I might take a rain check on that one. Maybe there's the zealous missionary like the Reeves, you know, they're out in Albania. Awesome, I'll, I'll pray for them. Or, you know, there's those paid people in churches or there's really zealous Christians that are really just gifted in evangelism. They're great at sharing. Let them do it. If you're feeling that, have a look at verse 20 with me. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, 
We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Notice here um, that Paul uses the word we. He, he keeps speaking in the plural throughout this passage. He's never speaking about himself just as the apostle. I, as the apostle, will go out. I will reconcile. I will share. He's always speaking collectively of those that are serving with him. He writes this letter to the Corinthians, and it's just him and Timothy. But there's a whole band of people that are working with him. Indeed, he's writing to a group of Christians, the whole church in Corinth, had its problems, but he's urging them to share the good news with all those around them. They were a strategic city in the ancient world. He keeps speaking of everybody's involvement in this. This is not just Paul's job. It's plural for all disciples. And notice too that he speaks about being an ambassador. It's the key word in this verse. Notice in the second half of verse 20 that we implore because we're ambassadors or representatives of Jesus. We appeal to people that they might heed the message, just as a nation's ambassador represents their country's interests. And so they represent their prime minister or president or their monarch or whatever. They speak on behalf of their nation. They must convey the messages that are given by their ruler. That is their job. And we represent Jesus, the one who has saved us, the one to whom we owe our allegiance. And so we need to share the message that he gives us to share. And so notice also, not only does Paul keep speaking in the plural in this passage, but he speaks in the past tense. We've already been given this job. It's already true. It's not a case of choosing to opt in. You're already in. If you're a Christian, then by definition, you've joined a family and one of the roles within your family is to help other people enter it. You want them to know what you know. And if all believers were imploring on Christ's behalf, then the spread of the gospel would be multiplied many times over. And as new people to come to trust in Jesus, they too are to be ambassadors so that we continue to multiply the representatives of Christ around the world. Sharing this message, it's not an optional extra just for the zealous Christians. That'd be like saying, you know, a nation's ambassador or their security intelligence can feel free not to follow the instructions of their ruler, that they can have some other interests that they're serving, perhaps their own kingdom or some other kingdom. What kind of ambassador would that be? Let me give you an example. Arguably, the biggest security scandal of the 20th century was the so-called Cambridge Five spy ring. This was five men during World War II in England who attained very high positions in the government. Indeed, they were close to the royal family. Uh, the leader, if you like, of this group, most well-known, is Anthony Blunt. And his memoirs were released 26 years after his death in 2009. Here was a man who was part of MI5. He was also the official art surveyor for the royal family, indeed in London. He was a close friend of the Queen, would go round the palace with her looking at the artworks. She even knighted him. And yet the whole time this group of five men were sending sensitive documents to the Russians who the English were fighting in World War II. I mean, what kind of ambassadors, what kind of security intelligence is this? 
how can a representative who not only fails to represent his monarch but works against her be anything but a shameful ambassador? I don't want to be this kind of ambassador for Jesus. If Christ is the ruler of my life and calls me to tell about his love to all people, I want to be about his work. I don't want to be off serving my kingdom or dismissing his task for me as too hard, too confronting. We represent Jesus, the one who has saved us. We owe him our allegiance. And the result will be that we look at people differently. Paul says in verse 16, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Isn't that one of our problems as we look out at the world? We look at a person and say, oh, well, they've got this level of wealth, or they have this career, or they live in this suburb, or they drive this car. We've got all these categories for how we assess a person and their needs. And we think, oh, well, that person seems to be doing really well in life. They don't really need to hear about Jesus. Or that person comes from this ethnic background and they've got another religious belief and so they don't need to hear this life-saving news. We know it's not true. As God looks out at the world, he only sees two types of people. There are those who have been reconciled to him through Christ and there are those who haven't been yet. Worldly assessments don't count. It's not a person's worldly status, it's their spiritual position that matters. And that's why evangelism has always been a key purpose of God's church. It's why it's always been a key requirement, desire for every Christian individual that they might hold out the good news. And so I hope as we get to the start of 2020, you're actually excited about the opportunities that will exist before you this year. But I think if you're like me, then if you hear a talk like this, then the overwhelming emotion that hits you is actually guilt rather than excitement. Because we think about the people we haven't shared with or the person we haven't got round to or that moment that we avoided and we didn't speak up or those other prayers that we might have prayed that we never got round to praying. And so we just feel this burden, this obligation. I just feel guilt as I think about evangelism. It's just the hard bit. But that's what, not what Paul intends in this passage. There's no motivation of guilt that will ever work with anyone. Paul doesn't speak about it. He speaks about Christ's love compelling us. He speaks about accountability, absolutely, that there's a day of judgment to come. And so I don't want you to feel guilty tonight. I find it hard too. I'm no different to you. I want to be excited about the year ahead. And I think the way to be so is to come back to the motivations that Paul gives us, but also to think incrementally. We always tend to make it too big. You know, we think about reaching Australia with the gospel and we think, I need to be Billy Graham. You know, I need to be able to give the perfect gospel explanation. I need to be better equipped until I can do anything. And, and the mountain just seems so high. But rather what we should be thinking is how can I just do that next one step? How can that person that I spoke to at work last year and we had that interesting conversation, how can I enter just another conversation again and get that one step further with them? How about that person in the family who... Yeah, I've had moments over the last couple of years. 
could I take that next step of inviting them to something at church? Maybe they come to the Discover course. Maybe they come to a men's or women's event. Break it down and think about all the little opportunities God will have for you this year and how you could just progress it that one step further. And if everybody was doing that, what a wonderful growing impact that would have. We have so many opportunities, really. We should be excited about the doors that God might open, and they will open if we pray. So often those opportunities seem hard or they're not there because we're not seriously praying day by day, week by week, that God would really open that next door for me to speak. And so I want to commit myself to praying this year. I want to commit myself to being bolder and speaking out. I want to commit myself to financially supporting those who are on the front line and doing it. It's not just about us. It is about supporting others as well. And so we can certainly give so that we can support the Reeve family in Albania. We can certainly give so that we can support Grace Jones and Heidi Wood as they serve in ministry internship, as they do things in their role this year that will be seeking to make Christ known. Heidi's going to be heading up our Discover, our four-week Explaining Christianity course. Grace is going to be leading the women's evangelistic events at Christmas again. Support them in what they're doing so that you might see the gospel continue to go out in numerous ways this year. Maybe you've got time during the week and you're not working nine to five, Monday to Friday perhaps, and you are quite able to teach the Bible. Well, I want to tell you, I get emails this time of year every year with people desperate for scripture teachers. I've just got one again this week from Caitlin, the children's worker at St. Mark's, who is overseeing the scripture in the West Wollongong schools, Lindsay Park, West Wollongong, Mount Kira. They are desperate. They've got three, four classes, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon. They said they don't start for another eight days, Monday week. We're so committed to hearing, seeing people hear the gospel that we will train them in any of the modules they need to get up to speed in this next week. Well, is that you? If it is, chat to me tonight. I'd love to pass your name on to Caitlin. There are so many opportunities around us to speak God's news, to impress on others the love that we have enjoyed as we've understood Christ's work on our behalf. And it's not just here locally, it's globally. It's the Reeve family. It's all our mission partners that we support through our budget as a church. We can do that as we pray for them, as we financially give. But we can also go on short-term missions. As you've heard, this Saturday night, we're going to hear the report from the Cambodian trip. Uh, the Vidlers are still in Bangladesh, and so in about a month's time, we'll hear about the Bangladesh report as well and what's been happening over there. Next January coming, we're going to have another team going to Thailand to support Jasmine Ng, one of our mission partners over there. Start praying now. God might raise you to be part of that team to serve and to explain the good news globally in that setting. There are so many opportunities this year. 2020 could be a great year of us making Christ known as a community of believers. Now, maybe even with all those things you've heard tonight, you're still thinking, well, I just don't feel confident enough. I, I'm not equipped enough. I, you know, I, I don't feel ready for that task. Look, we can always be trained more. We're going to be offering more training in personal evangelism this year, but I want to put it to you that that's not the stumbling block. If you're a believer here and you've been a believer for more than a month, then you'll know more than many of the people in Acts who are sharing the gospel. The problem, the stumbling block, is often not the information, 
It's the heart transformation. It's grasping this motivation of Christ's compelling love. That's the thing will get us over any barrier. Our commitment to see disciples made who will disciple other people. And so the result is we're often standing back. We're waiting for that tap on the shoulder. But I want to tell you, you've already been tapped. The moment you became a Christian, you've become part of family and part of your family's DNA is to share this message. So don't wait. Be about your family's business this year. Refocus. Think 2020. Here's an opportunity in lots of little ways this year, small, manageable ways that I can make a difference, that I can talk about my Saviour who loved me so much. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that your word to us is so clear of your great love for us in the sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to understand all that you have done for us, to feel compelled by your wondrous, gracious actions towards us. We're undeserving of your love, and yet you have poured it out on us through Christ. Lord, help us to want to share that wonderful truth that we have come to understand, that others may be drawn into your family as you work powerfully in their lives. Lord, it's ultimately your work to save And yet you choose to use us, flawed instruments as we are. Help us to be ready. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.